0: I will begin just by reading the the chapter to you. One of the things it says at the beginning of Revelation is, blessed is the one who hears the reading of this book. Uh, So, you know, even in just reading, there there is benefit. So hear the words that the Lord has for us this morning. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within... And on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, "Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals." And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures are. Uh, uh, and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, a bowl and a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myrads on myrads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy Thee is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature on in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea uh, and all of them that is in them saying to him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We're gonna. Um, we're going to state again. At the outset, what we stated at the outset of, of preaching on Revelation is that I feel like Revelation, rightly read, is more doxology than it is mystery. In our, our, our generations, uh, especially dating back just historically, especially the last hundred, twenty, hundred to fifty years in in various schools of biblical interpretation. Revelation has been turned into a mystery book. It it has spawned uh, all kinds of speculation, uh, all kinds of writings, all kinds of things with an emphasis on on decoding codes, finding answers to mysteries, finding the answer to this, finding the answer to that. And most of that, as, as you approach it, what you end up with is a giant missing of the point which is that Revelation is intended to function as doxology or worship rather than to state a a giant mystery. And so we'll dive in this morning and just deal directly uh, with the passage beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated upon the throne, that is the Father, a scroll... And written uh, a scroll written, on the, written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I heard a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Here's the situation the, the, the one upon the throne, uh, the Father, holds in his, his hand a, a scroll or a codex, a, a writing. Uh, the writing has writing uh, uh, the the. the the, what he holds in his hand has writing on the, on the outside and on the inside, and it is sealed with seven seals, and no one is able to, to open it. As we deal with Revelation, when you're reading in Revelation, you uh, have to read with a mind to the Old Testament. John himself, being a, a follower of, uh, of, of Jesus, of, of Jewish descent, Schooled in the Old Testament, knowledgeable in the Old Testament, expecting the promises of the Old Testament. When he begins to write about the scroll, certainly has in his mind the, the books uh, from the book of Daniel, where it talks about there uh, in an open book. And Daniel is told to write down these prophecies and the different prophecies. And then God tells him, now seal up this book. Uh, this book will be be sealed. Daniel asks, "When will it be opened?" Uh, God replies to him that the book will be opened uh, in the end time when the when the end comes. And so you have a sealed book coming from Daniel, full of, full of prophecies. Particularly thinking of things like Daniel chapter chapter seven, prophecies of the coming of the age of the Messiah, the Ancient of Days, the one who will reign forever, the one with a kingdom of of no end. Uh, prophecies of, of of the one who would who would set free. Uh, the people, all of these these, these prophecies, specifically from the, from the Old Testament, and we'll we'll get into this in a minute. But particularly in mind here will be prophecies about judgment and redemption coming from, from the Old Testament. There is coming a time when when the 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 words of the Old Testament would be fulfilled in reality. They would be fulfilled in, in truth. That comes from the. Uh, from the Old Testament. It comes from Daniel, it comes from Ezekiel, it comes from other places. These things are sealed up in, in a book for a time in, in the future. They include judgment and redemption, which we'll talk about, but even more generally, all of the, all of the testimony of the, of, the, of the Old Testament uh, progressing towards the age of, uh, of the Messiah, the age of fulfillment, the age of the end of all things. In Daniel, he's told to seal up the book, that it won't be opened until the end. And so John comes along so John has a vision John is a Jewish follower uh, of Jesus who has a steeped in the Old Testament steeped in that background steeped in that expectation has that in mind the the book of Daniel 7 especially uh, in mind the book, when he writes this. So he sees in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll or a book and within and on the back and sealed with seven seals and I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. So I gotta adjust that. Okay. Uh, so the, the problem is they're looking around, they're calling around, the angel calls all over uh, the cosmos, looks every place in the cosmos, goes, who's worthy to open this seal? Contained within the seal is the prophecies of the fulfillment. It, it is as if human history, as we talked about last week, emanates directly from, from the seals, especially with regard to the judgment and the redemption, the salvation of, of a people, the fulfillment of the messianic expect and the, that, that, uh, that, that the prophecy of that from the Old Testament. So John is watching the angel cry out, and we realizes that there's no one who, who's worthy to open it. No one can open it. They go from one end of the cosmos to the other end of the cosmos, and they can find no one to, to open it. The problem is, is, is that contained in, uh, in this scroll... Well, let, let me say this, the scroll that, that is being held is, is likely talking about something that John would have been familiar with in its style, a Roman will. Now, a, a Roman will was after the, someone in Roman culture died. The will was written with sections. Those sections were each sealed up, and only after the person who, who had given the promise had had passed could there be an executor of that will and the job was to find a great executor or someone who could carry out what was written in the will and so in a Roman will you needed two things the one who had given it to, to experience death and then a great executor coming to come and carry out what was written in the will. So when John says, there's no one to open this Roman will, he is thinking of the prophecies of old, the prophecies given in, in Daniel, the prophecies given in Zechariah, the prophecies given in... in um, Uh, Ezekiel, the prophecies given in Jeremiah, he's thinking of all of these promises and he who had lived in expectation of the fulfillment of all things, he who had lived for the coming of the time of the Messiah, he who had lived for the fulfillment of of history, he had waited for all of those things and he realizes that when they go out to find an executor for this will, someone who can carry out what is in it, not only someone who can carry it out, there's two conditions. One, it must be opened and two, it must be carried out, and there's no one to carry it out. That's why he begins to weep. So sometimes when we read this, we go, why is, why is John crying so much? There's, there's, it's, just a, it's just paper. It's just written. It's not. John understands because he understands the prophecies of the Old Testament and because he is a Jewish follower of Christ who has, who has messianic expectations, meaning judgment and judgment. Uh, judgment and redemption through this he, he understands that what is being held there are the very plans of God with an eye to all the things that have been told that were to come in, in the end throughout the Old Testament and he says Who, it, it, this, is, this is the great plan of God and there's no one who's worthy to carry it out he's fearful he might even be fearful because he's a, a Jewish follower of, 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 of Jesus he might even be fearful for a moment that even Jesus has not been found worthy to carry it out. And so he weeps because he thinks the plan of God may have been thwarted. He thinks that the plans of God may not be coming true. No one in heaven or on earth and under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. It should be said here that they're looking for, they're looking for a human to open scroll the scroll. Had to be human because the promises given were, were were human. And so many of the promises given to Adam originally, given throughout the and each time those the the, the, the conditions are, are are not met. And so Adam sinned and Adam becomes unworthy to open the scroll and then everyone who follows after they become unworthy to open the scroll and there's no one who is worthy verse 4 and I begin to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it the plan of God's being thwarted that's what he thinks he's in a moment he goes oh no there it is there's God on the throne and he holds in his hand the plan he holds in it the will and it needs an executor someone who can carry it out and no one's found worthy so he weeps verse 5 says and then one of the elders said to me weep no more Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We know that those are messianic names. Who is the root of David? Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? That is none other than Jesus. Those terms that are given to him, applied to him, are conquering terms. Those are are terms that are are applied specifically in context where he overcomes that which stands against his his people. So when John hears he says, it is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the conquering one, the one who has overcome, the one who can overcome. He understands these titles being applied to Jesus as saying, he is the one who can overcome all that comes against you the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This is none other than the Messiah, long prophesied. John had, as a Jewish follower of Jesus Christ, had lived in the era where he had seen the very fulfillment of those things come to pass. That Jesus, the Messiah, the one long prophesied all throughout every page of Scripture had come to fruition and, and, and had, had, had come to flesh in his, in his presence. John says elsewhere when, when he writes in, in 1 John, whom we have seen with our eyes, whom we have heard with our ears whom we have touched with our hands, John knows this man, he knows the root of day De- of, of, of 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 Jesse he knows the Lion of the tribe, uh, of the root of David. He knows the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He knows him. And so now he is hearing, it was not in vain that you followed this Jesus. It is not in vain that you are now in the middle of an island in exile. Remember, where is John when he hears this? He's on the island of Patmos. Why is he on the island of Patmos? For preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. For preaching that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. For preaching that Jesus is, is the one. For preaching that that all re- Jewish religion find its fulfillment and its filling up in the person of Jesus. He has preached this. He has preached that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament ever said. He has preached that Jesus died and was resurrected and he's on an island where he is in in, uh, in exile for preaching those things. Not only that, we remember John, though he was not martyred, was dropped into a vat of boiling oil for following that very Jesus. So when he stands in heaven and for when a moment he thinks that, that, that even Jesus us is not worthy to open the seals and open the scroll. He says, have I wasted my life? Am I in exile without reason? But then he hears these words, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Don't worry, John. Don't worry. The one whom you preached, the one whom you declared, the one whom you now sit in exile because of for, he is worthy to open the scroll with its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah is Jesus. The root of David is Jesus. And he is the fulfillment and the filling up of all of the Old Testament, every, prophecy, every promise, he is the filling up of those promises, and when John hears weep no more, he understands that his life has not been in vain, but let's go to verse six. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. We're going to do something we don't regularly do, which is just have a little language quibble with the text right here, which is, when it translates this, between the throne the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain is not the right translation or the right tense for what it says in the original language because what it says in the original language is that and I saw uh, in among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though slain and the idea is that in the original language there is not an idea of a past Thing, as though it had been slain, but it stands in their presence as currently slain as an ongoing slainness, which is not a, a word, uh, but there's an ongoing nature to the slainness here's the reason why the emphasis here then is that why is the lamb worthy to open the the scrolls right so We have all kinds of interesting stuff going going on here, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah is shown to be a lamb. He's conquered, and he's shown to be conquered because when they look, they see him as slain. The reason for the continual slainness is to make this point, that the reason he is worthy to open the seal is because of the cross. And the power of the cross of Jesus Christ in his death on our behalf is not a past tense power, but it is an ongoing power. It is daily the power of the cross in us. It is daily the power of the fact that the slain one in us. It is that power daily that enables us to live the Christian life. It is daily that power that overcomes on our behalf. And so the emphasis here is that the lamb stands as slain is that when you look to the one who is overcome, you see him as the slain one with the ongoing power of his slainness. The cross is not passed which by the way is a good word for us living in American culture those of us living uh, in a place where maybe we met Jesus uh, years ago and we're looking to move on to the deeper things right I gotta go deeper there is nothing deeper than this that the power of the Christian lives daily in this the slain one his slainness he is standing amongst the throne as slain, speaks to this, that the power of the cross is not a past tense power. The power of the cross is not a temporary power, meaning this is that we all know that we are saved in the sense that we are regenerated, we are made Christ followers through the cross. But do we understand that the ongoing power of the cross is that which allows us to live out the Christian life? It is that which allows us to walk with Jesus. It is that which allows us to overcome. And so there's this turnabout in Revelation here. He says, behold the lion of Judah. And when he looks for the lion, he sees the lion as a lamb. When you look look for a lion, you might think of, of teeth, being bared. You might think of a lion roaring and overcoming through attacking his enemies, but rather he sees the conquering one and he is overcome not by being the attacking lion. The thing that makes him the overcoming lion is that he is the slain lamb. And his slainness is not a past tense thing, but it is that which allows you in your everyday life to walk with him. The cross never has diminishing meaning or diminishing power or diminishing value in the life of the one who walks with Jesus, he is the slain one. We see him as slain. The cross has power in everything and forever. It's not temporary. Among the my elders, I saw a lamb standing as though slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Um, the seven horns is a reference. Uh, again to, to Daniel uh, to Daniel 7 in, in Daniel 7 the the, uh, the seven the horns come against the, the saints of God and the horns overcome and so Daniel is looking forward to the time right after that you get the passage about the ancient of days after that you get the, the passage about the coming kingdom Daniel is looking forward to even though he's forced to seal it up he's looking forward to a coming time when, when those horns will be overcome those things that came against the horn is a symbol of power those powers will be overcome. Here, God is going to flip it on his head and inspiring John to write this or showing him this vision that ironically the lamb has on its head seven horns and that which they thought they could bring against the lamb, they thought they could conquer the saints. No, here he is, the lamb he has upon his head, the seven horns he overcomes. You may come against him, but you will not Win uh, the the seven eyes. The seven eyes are from Jeremiah. It is the idea of Jesus looking, uh, or, or the idea of of, of a prophetic looking, and, and specifically the context is the wiping out of iniquity. Right in in its original context. And so the seven eyes speak to this, this idea that the one who comes with power to to overcome, the one who is going to overcome all enemies to the saints also has seven eyes to see and to wipe out all iniquity in the lives of the saints and against the, the saints. Uh, So seven horns seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God the seven spirits anytime we see that Remember seven is the number of perfection You see that in connection with with the spirit that is a reference to the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity uh, Himself so which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth the sending of the Spirit so and he went so the Lamb, then, verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp. Uh, just as a technical point, only the elders are holding the harp. It, it gets confusing in that, in, in that, that English, but the, the 24 elders are, are holding a harp uh, and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Um, the job of, of the elders is to essentially curate the prayers of the saints towards the one of him who is on the throne. The elders, in that sense, have a, have a priestly duty and a priestly role there. We talked about last week how the living creatures function essentially like divine uh, worship leaders. Uh, in this sense, the elders uh, function a different liturgical role in the service. They're curating the prayers uh, of the saints. Uh, and then they all sing a new song. And here's the song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people from every tribe in language in people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay, here's why we go, so we know that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain. We know that he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We know he can open the seals. The question becomes then, why can Jesus open the, the, the seals? Why is he the worthy one? What makes him worthy? As I suggested before, these, th- this deals with promises of redemption and promises a, 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 of judgment. These promises have given be, been given before, starting with Adam and given to humans, and no one could ever live up to being worthy. What makes Jesus worthy is listed here. He is worthy to open the scroll, or take the scroll and open its seals. He is worthy to be both, uh, to be the executor of this Roman will. He's worthy to carry out what is in the will. Why? Because he was slain. And by his blood, he has ransomed people from God. Jesus is worthy to open the the seals. He is worthy to be the executor of this will by virtue of the fact that he was the giver of the will and he died to put the will into place, if that makes sense. And so Jesus, in this sense, is is, is both the one who wrote the will the Roman will, and the executor of the will, which can only happen supernaturally. His death put into place the fact that these promises could be given, and his, the fact that he is again alive makes him the executor, or the carrier out of the promises in the will, but he is worthy to take the will because he was slain. The, the, there's no human who can be found to open it, because the, you have to be righteous. You have to be Uh, you have to be worthy. And no one is found to be worthy, only Jesus. Because the will is full of judgment. The will is full of human history, redemption and judgment, but there's judgment in it. And it carries out the plans of God. And, And what God says is that when humans sin against him, or when humans sinned against him, if we want to say that that way, going back to Adam and Eve, when, when sin entered the world, everything became broken, including the earth, including all, all the processes in the earth, but particularly human sin enters onto the scene. Therefore, because of the sins of humans, no humans found worthy, but rather than being worthy to open the seal, they are under the judgment contained in the seal. And so holding in his hand are, are these seals, inside, is this will, inside each of the seals is going to be, as we'll see in the coming weeks, this long list of judgments that, that God is going to pour out on the people. And frankly, every human is under every one of those. They are under the judgment contained in the, in the seal. And so the reason... What we can't open it ourselves is we're under its judgment. And so what would then would it take? Well, what it take to make someone worthy to open the seal is again the central story of redemption, the central story we know. Jesus himself entered into humanity, placing himself under the righteous judgments contained in the seal, so that by dying a death he did not deserve. By taking righteous judgment upon him, he might, in his resurrection, um, because of the reality of his death, become the righteous judge who carries out what's in the seals, if that makes sense. So what it took was Jesus, who was righteous and had no sin, placing himself under the judgments contained in the, the book, contained in the seals, he placed himself under those judgments. In other words, he placed himself under the wrath of God on behalf of all others, so that he being righteous, having done no wrong, could be the one who opened the seals once he was resurrected as, as the righteous resurrected one. So he becomes, he places himself under righteous judgment, though he had done no wrong, so that he could become righteous judge, and so that he could redeem those who were under the same curse, right? He t- but also that he could pour out judgment upon those who, who did not walk with the, with the Lord God. And so, why is Jesus worthy to open the seal? Because he was without sin and yet died as though he were a, were a criminal. Because he was without sin and he took the wrath of God upon himself he was without sin having no wrong in him and he perfectly kept the law on behalf of those who 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 perfectly broke all of the law right it's kind of like two-way perfection in that in that we are perfectly unworthy and he is perfectly worthy Right? and so he can open the seals because he has taken the judgment contained in the seals upon himself already. And having been resurrected, in power he has overcome the judgments and that makes him able to carry out the the the, both the judgment and the redemption contained in there. But in even the more general sense, it, it established and, and declared him to be the fulfillment. What Jesus did showed him to be the fulfillment of every prophecy of old, the Old Testament. So when we read in, in uh, Isaiah about his his wounds healing us, he fulfilled that. When we read in, um, uh, in, in Genesis 1-1, uh, or Genesis not Genesis one one but we read in, in, in Genesis what is called the proto evangelion or the first preaching of the gospel where where God curses the serpent and says your offspring shall nip at her heel but her offspring shall crush your head. Jesus is the fulfillment of that and every other prophecy given in the in the in the old testament or in the in the old covenant leading up to this. He is both the fulfiller and the filler up. He gives to it its meaning and so because of that because that was established by his death and his resurrection, it established the truth of the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of those things. He is worthy to open the scroll because the scroll is about him. He is worthy to open the scroll because the scroll is fulfilled in him. He's worthy to open the scroll because he is the executor or the executor of this Roman will. He died to put the, the will into place into place and now he has become the executor by virtue of his resurrection he's going to carry out that which is in the seven uh, in the seven seals he's both the the recipient of of the will and the executor of the will but he's also the initiator of the will by, by virtue of his, of his death. And so, this is again what it says here Worthy are you to take the scrolls and open the seven seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you have ransomed people for God from every la- tribe, language, nation, and race. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Remember, we talked about this before. He has made us a kingdom, he's made us a people, priests to our God, which means we get to carry out the high priestly duty or the priestly duty of going between God and man. In other words, we get the job of reconciliation. We talked about this usually when Revelation talks about works. It means evangelism or the sharing of who Jesus is and what he has done. Right? He's made us a kingdom. He's made us a kingdom and priest. We are his people. We get a a job as his people to declare his goodness both day and night, in season, out of season, anytime we encounter people we declare his goodness. He says you have made them a kingdom and they shall reign on the earth. And so will actually close wrapped around, around that passage there, wrapped around that song there. This is a song I want to point out to you this, uh, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe, language, nation, and people, right? So there is an expansion. The, old, the beauty of, 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 of scripture is that, that in, in scripture all throughout the old covenant, God makes promises, and then in the New Covenant, as New Covenant people, he fulfills those promises, but he, he, he fulfills them typically in a greater way than could have even been comprehended when he gave them, right? And so if you were to go into the Old Covenant and to look to promises, your promi- the promises would look like they are limited to a national people, Right A people who lived in one nation, a nomadic people, the people then who moved into the to the promised land, they look like they 're limited to one ethnicity, one national people group the the nation of of israel this the, the scope of the New Testament continually expands the, the the idea of what it means to be Israel from being one national people to one people who are made a people through the work of uh, of Jesus Christ. That's why Ephesians two says He has destroyed the the uh, dividing wall of hostility. It's why Ephesians two seems to apply Ezekiel thirty seven about the dry bones living directly to a Gentile church. Can these bones live? Only you know, Lord. One, and it says in Ezekiel thirty seven, once they were uh, strangers and foreigners, they didn't understand the promises. Eze- uh, you go to Ephesians chapter two. It says, once you were far off, strangers, foreigners to the covenants of promise, but now you who were far off have been brought near and been made one, right? There's this expansion of the idea that, that while, in, in, while God chose to work through a national people in the Old Covenant, a national people Israel, there's an expansion on what those people mean, meaning this is that God was not pleased that his chosen ones should come from only one nation and only one ethnicity, but he expands it continually throughout the New Testament to include all people. And so sometimes, uh, especially if I meet people from... Um, very dispensational uh, backgrounds. We will discuss this, and they will read in the New Testament, and they will make very big deals about land promises. And I will say what I'm about to say is a secondary issue. This is not a, like a dividing issue of the gospel for me, but uh, we're going to talk about what I think Scripture teaches uh, for a minute here. I will meet people and say, well, it's very clear that Israel needs to possess this piece of land in this place from this land because God gave to them a land promise, to which I agree he did give a, give a land promise, but then I would argue that that promise is fulfilled in the person of Jesus in fact I would argue if I go back one step I would argue that Jesus himself is the embodiment of what Israel is right? And so the the truest marker of who the people of God is, is fulfilled in Jesus. Like we just talked about, he is the fulfiller and the filler up of every promise. There's not one promise of the Old Testament that will not be fulfilled, has not been fulfilled. It is just predominantly fulfilled in the person, and the work of Jesus Christ. And so he is the truest marker of what is Israel. And so how does a person become Israel or the people of God? They become it in him, So that when we see promises given to Israel in the Old Testament, we see them fulfilled continually. And the New Testament writers will talk about their fulfillment and they will often talk about their fulfillment in in Gentile churches, in churches mixed with Jews and Gentiles, mixed in all of these things. Going so far as, for instance, if we went to the last verse of, of Galatians written to a Gentile church, he refers to the people at Galatia as you, the Israel of God. In other words, the idea that I'm trying to make is, is this, and I have a point, we'll get to it in the text in a minute. The point I'm trying to make is that we have been taught, especially if you've grown up in the last 120 years, with the pervasive influence culturally of dispensational theology, or what's called futurist theology, uh, if you, you have been influenced by the idea that there are somehow two plans of God, and one of those involves God giving the people who are ethnically or nationally Israel a little hubble of land while he gives to the church Almost everything else, and, and, uh, but at the same time, claiming that there is a specialness to, to Israel and they need to receive land promises. And if you're very good at this and you've done charts or these sorts of things, you can map out and delineate exactly what piece of land they need to get so that we almost think because of the great influence of this dispensational theology, especially in the early parts of, uh, of the last century, uh, evangelicals were very influential in politics. We should rethink whether we want to be influential in this way. It is good to repeat that again, especially in our time. But evangelicals were very influential in early politics so that evangelicals helped to get a, a, a piece of land for a nation Uh, called Israel, a a geopolitical nation called Israel in 1948 and, and managed to put it there. And then evangelicals declared because they helped to get that people in that that is Israel. I am simply suggesting that, that on the basis of Galatians, on the basis of Ephesians, on the basis of, of in fact, all of Isaiah, which seems to suggest that, that in God's working, yes, he's working through the national people of Israel. Yes, Abraham's covenant's important. Yes, Noah's covenant. Yes, 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 yes. Those are the forefathers of our faith. But I, I would point out that when Romans says we are grafted into the tree, we're into the tree. We're not grafted into a tree next to the tree right Uh, point out that in Ephesians when it says we're made one people that Jesus Christ by his blood has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility destroyed the barrier between us that to argue that somehow in the future that in the end that the Jews and the Gentiles become two people once again is to essentially argue that that the very work of Jesus Christ which God established the work of Jesus Christ dividing the, the, the the destroying the dividing wall of hostility that God is going to come against the work of his own son or the work of himself, because we're Trinitarian, that God is going to come against that work and reestablish the wall, that he's going to reestablish the barrier, that he is going to come in and undo the work of Ephesians and undo the work of the cross, seems to be bad theology to me. It seems to be a bad idea. And so what I'm going to suggest to you that when we read uh, Israel and we read promises that we not view that as a geopolitical nation, but we view that as the New Testament does. For instance, the New Testament says uh, of Abraham, not all with Abraham's uh, offspring are Abraham's offspring, but rather it's by faith, right? There is this idea that there is a Jewish people and a Gentile people and the great work of God in Ephesians is that the cross destroys the dividing wall of hostility between them and makes us into one people any argument in the future that again makes them two separate people has a problem with the cross. And I already said, he's standing there as slain. There is ongoing relevance of the cross. The cross has power into the future. I say all of that to say that, that sometimes we get wrapped up in, in, in promises that go, well, then the Jewish people, those who are ethnically Jewish, um, those who who, who have enough Jewish blood, and I don't know how much Jewish blood. Those who are ethnically Jewish, those who are all of this, those who are part of that nation of Israel are going to inherit a land. Some people believe in that being fulfilled by the geopolitical land that happened in, in um, 1948 in Israel. And then we're told that that nation is special, chosen uh, by, by God, all those things. Leaving aside the fact that, that frankly, as a geopolitical nation, they do not follow Jesus. As a geopolitical nation, in fact, they reject Jesus as a people. As a geopolitical nation, they persecute Christians in their country. As a geopolitical nation, they are happy to take the money of evangelicals, but they do not want the God of the evangelicals. And all I'm simply saying is that if Jesus is the overcomer, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise, the promise will not be given to any person who does not have Jesus so i said all of that to say this is that there seems to be an expansion one of the reasons jesus is worthy is because of this is because in the promises of old working through the greatness and the goodness of the nation of israel working through our father abraham working through our father isaac working through our our father jacob working through all of those things working through that those great men of the plan who never saw the fulfillment of the promise we who know Jesus get to see the fulfillment of the promise and it looks like this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain for who? For, uh, and, uh, and your blood ransom people for God from every tribe, language, nation, and people. In other words, it expanded. When Jesus fulfills promises, he overfulfills them. He fulfills them in a greater way than you expected so that Jesus' people are not limited to one ethnicity, but the people of God, the Israel of God, is made up of every ethnicity of people on earth because he has done this with his blood, because he is the one who is the giver and the fulfiller of promises. His work in Ephesians, destroying the dividing wall of hostility, will not be taken down, even by bad theology or bad preaching, there is no wall between the Jew and the Gentile, but rather we are the Israel of God. So then people go, well, what about the land promises? I would simply respond with this, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Some people who are very chart-based, uh, my background, by the way, uh, is, is that um, my grandpa, uh, great great man of God, uh, awesome man of Jesus. But his background coming from, from Moody Bible Institute and different stuff, wrote lots of charts. And I, I still have those charts. And they're, they're super cool as charts go. The problem is, is that those of us, um, those of us who are not dispensational, we don't have as cool of charts. And so because we don't have as good of charts, like our position Uh, tends to be less represented in popular culture, even though, frankly, it's the historical position of of the church. And so I, I come from a chart background, but those people who are very chart based can tell you exactly where the land that Israel needed to inhabit was, right? It needs to go to this river and this river on this side. And they can give you the exact coordinates that Israel needs to inhabit those or it's not fulfilled. My simple question would be this, are those coordinates contained on the earth? Because if those coordinates are contained on the earth, I would suggest you that in inheriting all of the earth, Israel has gotten everything and more of what was promised them in scripture, right? So the example I regularly use is this, is that, that I come to you and say, in three weeks, I'm gonna give you $5. You're like, yeah, man, that is, a, that is an awesome promise. It's like, I'm gonna get $5. So you look forward to it. This assumes a lot of poverty on your part, this example. I should have gone bigger, but we started with this. So um, <laughs> maybe better for a children's sermon, but some of y'all Dutch, you know, you like your $5. I like my $5. So I come to you and say, three weeks, I'm gonna give you $5 and you look forward to it. You expect to it. You're like, the moment's coming. When am I gonna give my $5? And I come to you at the end of the three weeks and you're with a group and I say, Hey, look at you with this group. I am going to fulfill that promise in your midst. And I give to all of you, you're with five other people. I give to all five of you, $500 each. Here's my question. Which one of you would say I had not fulfilled my promise? No, sorry, sorry. You said $5. I need you to take back the money from those people all right, and I need to, you to give me own. no, you take the $500. You know you would, right? If you were old enough, you would remember a, a Little Caesars commercial, right? Let me explain to the youngins. So Little Caesars was not always a hot and ready place, right? It wasn't always like, like the place where you know, uh, going to Little Caesars is like playing Russian roulette, right? Because if you get there at the right time, you might get a fresh, uh, fresh hot and ready. You get there at the wrong time, you might get a piece of cardboard. And you just, you play with your own life when you go to Little Caesars. But there was a time when Little Caesars actually, you could call them and they would make the pizza on the, on the spot. And what they were famous for, okay, what they were famous for was buy one, get one free pizzas, right? I don't think they called it buy one, get one free, but at Little Caesars, if you bought one pizza, you got two pizzas, right it's what they were known for and so their famous commercial during that time was the leader of a boy scout troop who showed up and said i would like one pizza and the person said well if you pay for one pizza you'll get two pizzas and he said well if i pay for if i get two pizzas then i'll pay for two pizzas and he said well if i get (laughs) or if you pay for two pizzas you'll get four pizzas if you he said, well, if I get four pizzas, then I'll pay for four pizzas. And then the person would say, well, then you'll get eight pizzas. And he said, well, if I get eight pizzas, then I'll pay for eight pizzas. And they like, then you'll get 16 pizzas. And it goes on and on and beyond my ability to do math publicly, right? But the point is, it was always a commercial and everybody got that it was funny because we know none of us are like that, right? My, my simple argument is, is this, is that Jesus and being the fulfillment and the filling up of every Old Testament promise, is is not not fulfilling the promise because he has expanded the promise to people of every nation tribe language and race he's not and he's not not keeping the promise because he has decided in his goodness not to give to the people a limited geopolitical nation but rather he is going to give to them the earth we are inheritors of of the earth on the earth we shall reign as kingdoms and priests and we shall have heaven will come down and meet earth we'll talk about that later in revelation we'll have direct access to the to the father But the idea is simply this. Is that when God fulfills these promises, he fulfills them in a way that is so much greater than we could comprehend. And sometimes I find us going, well, I have a theological system that says you have to do it like this. And he goes, well, I'm the Lord and I'll do it how I want, right? Because he has overcome, he has conquered, he is worthy. So here's the... Here's the application of that, and that's what I said at the beginning. Revelation right, right is not is not about searching for mystery; it's about searching for doxology, right? There's a reason Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. There's a reason He's worthy to be both both of the 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 the, the guarantor and the executor of the of the of the Roman will, right? It, it's because He died. And it's because He took the judgments that are contained in uh, next week. Pastor is going, uh, going to go into the next section and we'll see what's in, inside the scrolls and we'll see what's inside each of those ones. But Jesus is already as, as, as the righteous redeemer experienced all the judgment within. And because he has experienced that and he has overcome it by virtue of his righteousness and his death he is worthy also to open and carry out. He's the executor of the will and he's going to carry out all that is in human history. So This is then good news because we know this. If we're in Jesus, he's going to carry out every promise that he's given to us. He doesn't not fulfill his promises. Sometimes people go, well, are you saying Jesus not fulfill? No, Jesus fulfills every promise, and he fulfills it in such deep and powerful ways. So he's the fulfiller of every promise. He's the one who is going to, um, we sometimes struggle, we're going to see in the next coming weeks, Jesus Meeting out judgment upon people and judgment upon the nations. We're sometimes uncomfortable with Jesus pouring out judgment upon the nations. I simply remind you of this. The people in the first century were not uncomfortable because they were persecuted and they were hoping for relief from the persecution. So Jesus is the protector of his people. Jesus is the fulfiller of every promise. Jesus is the one who has made us a kingdom a priest. He's the one who can open the scroll. And if there is no scroll, if there is no will, if, the, if that can't be opened, then the cross has no power power and you have no salvation, and redemption is no thing, but he stands in, the, in around the throne, and he stands there and takes from the Father the scroll, and he can do it because he does it as one slain, because the cross has power. The po- cross power. cross's power was not limited to the day on which it happened. It was not limited to the day on which you met him or I met him, but the cross has power until the end of time. He is the slain one. He is the overcoming one. He is the worthy one. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. If I could add, he's the Nazar of Nazareth, which means he's the branch of, 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 of Jesse. He is the fulfillment of everything that happens in Scripture, and you can be sure of that because he can open the, 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 the book that contains the whole of human history, and he has the power and the strength and the glory to carry it out. It's doxology. You encounter a Jesus with power. You encounter a Jesus who can do what he says. You encounter a Jesus who fulfills every promise. Therefore, the response is doxological. You sing a new song. Worthy is he. Worthy is he to open the, open the scroll because by his blood he has ransomed people from, for God from every nation, language, tribe, and race. We respond doxologically and we know the God whom we worship. We also lean into this fact that we are the people of God. We are the Israel of God. We are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a kingdom a priest, We then have a doxological reason to praise him, but our doxology should overflow into sharing the goodness of that God with everyone we meet. Do you not want the people around you to know him? If you don't want the people around you to know him, it's a sign that you do not know him yet enough. But if you know him, if you've met him, if you've seen him, if you've walked with him, if you, if you like John said, we have seen with our eyes, we've touched with our hands. We've not done that, but we live in the era of fulfilled prophecy, right? So, I, I should have said this at the beginning, but some would view this passage, well, that's a, that's a future thing, or we don't know. But our view is this, is that this passage is talking about all of inaugurated history between Pentecost, Jesus ascending into heaven, and, 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 and the parousia, uh, parousia, when Jesus comes back from heaven, when heaven comes down, and the new heaven and the new earth comes, there's coming a time, but this covers all of it. We live in the time of inaugurated eschatology which means not to say that everything has been fulfilled but the fulfillment is happening amongst us because jesus by his blood has made it so we live in the time of the overcoming we live in the time of this this reality revelation is not written to tell some group way in the future something important or some group way in the past something important but it's written to tell the churches in all time of this important thing that we are the ones who follow the lamb who stands amongst us as slain. The one who is worthy to take the scroll. The one who is worthy to carry out history. The one who has taken people not from one nationality but every nationality and made them into a mestizo. One people. One new race and he has fulfilled the promises in our midst, and we shall inherit the earth. The response then is doxological. When you know that Jesus, you worship that Jesus. Pray with me.